All right, so I got a bit of a strange, uh, strange idea for this week. So when we first started doing this TV stuff, we started off going sort of roughly chronologically. You know, I was just digging up really old TV so we could just see what the early days were like. And, uh, and it was weird because there's not a lot of stuff available and not a lot of information about it. But yeah, it, uh, it didn't exactly help our listenership necessarily, <laughs> just watching weird old stuff because uh, no one knows what it is, but it was just kind of interesting just to delve into. And then lately we've been more and more approaching modern, the modern era, or, you know, not delving back as deep, or more or less contemporary these days. But I thought, just to change it up a little, why not dig back into the past? And we've been watching some movies lately, and with movies you can go way further back than TV, obviously. And in particular, I found this one YouTube channel it's just called Old Films and Stuff. <laughs> Not the most fancy pants title ever, but I stumbled across this guy's page. There's a lot of this stuff on YouTube, but this just seems like a good, just to centralize it, this one, one place. On the YouTube version, I'll grab these clips and put them on. But if you're listening to this as a podcast, this episode in particular is going to be very abstract. So you should probably, the best thing to do would be to go on YouTube, just type in old films and stuff and go to this guy's page because everything we watch today is going to be from this guy's one page. So what this guy does, he either restores old footage and, you know, tries to fix the coloring or make it less jittery or whatever. Or in some cases, he's a collector of old stuff. He's actually found things that were thought to be lost, just like weird little film snippets and clips and like he'll buy an old projector online and in it will be some some random film you know just all kinds of weird stuff so i basically just grabbed the stuff that i thought was the most interesting and we'll see i don't know if we'll get through all this because there's a bunch of them but they're all pretty short individually and it's just a bunch of random old stuff and i've got it set up by year going back further and getting closer to the present so the first thing this is kind of neat this is, we're going to start off extra weird. We're going to talk about the future a bit before we really delve into the past. But this is a picture of a man from 1839, but they used AI to make him move, kind of bring him back to life. Like AI technology has gotten incredibly better just in the last like two years. So wait, now, let me get this straight. This is just a photograph from 1839 that they have animated through AI. Yeah, and uh, yeah, like because what AI does is just like predictive technology. Like it doesn't actually have any, you know, it's called artificial intelligence, but there is no intelligence. It just infers what the next thing might be. So basically, like what this AI program did is it just took examples of modern day video of like, okay, here's a human face. Here's how it works. Here's how it moves. What if we took this picture of this guy and just made it move like that? And it's pretty, uh, pretty Amazing. good. So here's what a man from 1839, which we would normally never be able to see what he looked like in motion. Here's just a quick little bit of probably what it looked like. Um, wow. Boy, what a handsome man he was. <laughs> and you can see, I'll just play it again, you can see that it's from an old photograph because it's got all these scrape marks, you know, from it just being an old picture. And uh, presumably it probably wasn't in color either. I'm not sure if the guy colorized it. But, uh, but yeah, just, so it's just him looking around, not doing anything too special, but kind of cool, isn't right? Isn't that amazing? It probably wasn't in color. It may have been in a copper, copper look to it. But photographs at that time wouldn't have been colored. They're either kind of gray or possibly a yellow, coppery look. 
Wow. So yeah, just to start things off, and I thought just before we really delve into all this other stuff, because I, uh, I presume you haven't been keeping up too much with uh, recent AI advancements. <laughs> Gee, surprise, surprise. Yeah. And oh. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's gotten really good, not only with that, but all kinds of stuff. AI can make uh, portraits and pictures and like nature scenes that don't really exist, but you can never tell. They look so real. And one of the more impressive things lately is this thing called ChatGPT is like the most famous example of it. But it's, uh, you know, like writers and stuff are starting to worry like, oh, no, AI is going to take our jobs. And I was messing around with it. And it is pretty remarkable how much it really does feel like something that a person wrote and how it doesn't it doesn't stumble. Like it doesn't make big mistakes that would prove that a person didn't write this. So just as an example, I went on ChatGTP the other day. And since we just recently watched Jeeves and Worcester, I asked it to write me a scene from Jeeves and Worcester. And it actually wrote a thing that was way too long, had extra characters and stuff. And I was like, no, 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 I'm not reading that. That's <laughs> several pages long. So instead, I asked it, write a short scene in the style of Jeeves and Worcester. So all this thing does is, again, who knows? It doesn't know what Jeeves and Worcester is. Who knows if anyone has ever asked it about that ever. But this only took like 20 seconds. Basically, it just scours the internet for Jeeves and Worcester. And it's like, okay, who are these people? Who are the characters? What, is the, what are these stories commonly about? What are the tropes? How do they act? How do they talk? And it just spit this thing out in like 20 seconds. And let me just read it for you because it's, uh, it's uh, and this could have been anything. I've done it with Fight Club or American Pie or whatever. It doesn't matter what. It'll just do this and it's incredibly accurate. So here's the scene Chat GPT wrote. Scene, Bernie Worcester's bachelor flat, early morning. Bertie is standing in his dressing gown, frantically searching for his misplaced monocle. I don't know, he doesn't really have a monocle, does he? <laughs> no, not that we've seen. <laughs> so that's a good example of, it doesn't really know what it's doing. There's no real intelligence here. It just knows it's a fancy British show. <laughs> so, so, you know, it doesn't fair, get everything fair right. Fair game. Jeeves enters, holding a tray with a steaming cup of tea. Bertie Worcester, in distress. Jeeves, this is a catastrophe. My monocle has vanished into thin air. I can't go about my day with only one eye functional, you know? Jeeves calmly, indeed, sir, it would be quite the spectacle. Allow me to assist you. So it even had a joke in there. It even has <laughs> yeah. a monocle joke. Jeeves retrieves Bertie's monocle from the pocket of Bertie's dressing gown and deftly places it in Bertie's eye. Bertie Worcester, relieved. Ah, Jeeves, you're a lifesaver. I have no idea how you always manage to find these things. Jeeves, smiling. It's all in a day's work, sir. Now I've taken the liberty of preparing your morning tea. Will there be anything else on the agenda? Bertie Worcester, sipping tea. Well, Jeeves, I'm meeting Gussie Finknottle at the Drones Club for a spot of lunch. He's positively despondent about his newt collection. I suppose I'll have to listen to his woes and offer some consoling words. Jeeves, raising an eyebrow, might I suggest, sir, that you share one of your amusing anecdotes to lift Mr. Furknottle's spirits? Your storytelling prowess is unparalleled, and it often has a cheering effect. Bertie Worcester, grinning. Jeeves, you're absolutely right. I shall regale Gussie with the tale of the time I mistakenly entered a vegetable competition at the local village fair. That ought to put a smile on his face. Jeeves, approvingly. An excellent choice, sir. I'm certain Mr. Finknottle will find it most diverting. Bertie Worcester confidently. Right, oh, Jeeves, by Jove, with you by my side, there's no social conundrum I can't conquer. <laughs> Off to the drones club, then. A little on the nose, but that is what the show's about. 
Jeeves and Bertie exit the flat, ready for another day of quirky misadventures and the boundless challenges of the upper crust society of London. Well done! Yeah, so literally all you'd have to do is, you know, just do one more pass as a human just to take out those parts that are a little too just directly saying what, you know, mm. what happened. I mean, it's it's incredibly good. And replace the word with monocle. There, I mean, there's any number of items that you could replace that with, yeah. like his pocket watch or something like that. But well, very well done. And even yeah, just the the that's actually doubly impressive that it had the spectacle joke. That is a step beyond yeah. what you normally see. Well, that's probably why they put the monocle in there so that could, so that spectacle joke would work. Right. So I'm uh, impressed. Yeah. So it's one of those things <laughs> I'd that I'd want to watch that show. It's one of those things that, I guess, like on the longer timeline, the thing with the AI model, since it doesn't, it's it's not necessarily inventive, it's just pulling from the past. Like, it can never really think of a new thing, but it's so good at drawing from old stuff. But most television does not draw from really new stuff either. Like, they have the initial shows that are quite innovative, but everything else is kind of a regurgitation of something that has happened before, so... Writers uh, on strike, you guys better watch out. Yeah, especially, I mean, with, it depends on the, uh, what the thing is, but people just for experiments have had, like, hey, chat GTP, can you write an episode of uh, WWE Raw? And they'll always be, you know, and that's like a three-hour long wrestling show. So there's always something in there that just truly doesn't make sense, but most of it, I don't know if I could tell the difference. <laughs> it's not like wrestling is that creative. It's just, you know, two guys fighting, here's why they're fighting. So, yeah, it is one of those things that it does seem not maybe not that you just set AI free and just let it write stuff. But if you say you need 10 pitches for a movie, just to actually hold on, let's try that. Like, why hire writers when you could just ask the AI just to get you started? Yeah, to come up with 10 different scenarios and then you pick. Um, all right, there. It took a sec to get logged into ChatGPT, but it did just give me a warning that I think is funny to bring up is that it does say, hey, double check. You know, you're not supposed to use this for facts. Double check this because it could just make stuff up because there are stories about people that have used it to write papers and things. And it just, it, it gives you the, the, the sense that it's troweling the entire internet and it knows what it's talking about. But it kind of just makes things up. But anyway, I don't know if we can put if the amount is too much. But let's try it. Let's say, give me 10 pitches for world... War to films, and let's see what it says. Certainly, here are 10 pitch, pitch ideas for World War II films. Number one, The Code Breaker's Gambit. In the midst of World War II, a brilliant team of code breakers races against time to crack the unbreakable Enigma code, but they must also navigate personal rivalries and espionage threats within their own ranks. That's, uh, that's too generic, that sucks. Number two, The Night Witches. Follow the daring all-female Soviet bomber regiment known as the Night Witches as they fly perilous missions behind enemy lines facing both the Germans and sexism within their own military. That one's good. <laughs> I'd watch that. Number three, The Lost Battalion. Based on the true story of the 77th Infantry Division, this film chronicles the harrowing journey of a battalion trapped behind enemy lines in the Argonne Forest and their fight for survival. Oh yes, that, there actually had been films made about that. See, so that's a good example. I've never heard of that before, so they could have made that up and I wouldn't yeah. know. But See, the Argonne Forest is in France, just outside between France and Belgium. And yeah, they, they were held up there for, I don't know, quite a while. 
And then yeah. I guess I won't go through all these, but I do see like uh, the Monuments Men, which that movie did also recently come out, Stolen Art, uh, Pearl Harbor one. You know, basically, I guess maybe what I would want to ask it if I did it again was give me, well, okay, well, there's an idea. Forget about 10, but how about give me a pitch for a World War, a World War II movie that has not been made yet? Like a story that, because these are a lot of these are stories that have already been done. Let's see what it says about that. Great. Here we go. All right. So uh, for the pitch for a World War II story that has not, I asked it for a, a story that has not yet been filmed. So it gave us. Invisible Heroes of the Pacific, historical drama slash war. The logline is, in the uncharted waters of the Pacific, a diverse group of soldiers, sailors, and civilians, including Japanese Americans, Pacific Islanders, and a female nurse, come together to survive, resist, and ultimately change the course of the war in an untold World War II story. And then it gets into the longer synopsis. Invisible Heroes of the Pacific is a gripping World War II drama that sheds light on a lesser-known aspect of the conflict. The film is set in the early days of the war when Japan's Imperial Army was rapidly advancing through the Pacific, capturing island after island. Amidst the chaos, a diverse and unlikely group of heroes emerges on a remote, strategically important island. The group includes a second-generation Japanese-American soldier who's torn between loyalty to his country and his family's heritage, a resourceful Pacific Islander guide with deep knowledge of the terrain, and a courageous female nurse determined to save lives under fire. As the Japanese forces close in, these characters form an alliance, yada yada. I mean, it sounds like a real movie to me. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it could be quite an exciting movie. And now... Even crazier, so we got that. It spit that out pretty fast. This all seems pretty good. But it's also got this button down here, Regenerate, where you can just say, like, not good enough. Give me another one. <laughs> and in mere seconds, ta-da, <laughs> here's another one. This one's The Forgotten Heroes, the Noor Inayat Khan story. In the darkest days of World War II, a remarkable and unlikely hero emerges. Noor Inayat Khan, a gentle musician and pacifist, transforms into an extraordinary spy who risks everything to infiltrate Nazi-occupied Paris. This is insane, right? These are real movies. This is fucking nuts. And you can just, like, yeah, I'd be worried too, I guess, if I was... Because, I mean, a lot of it is uh, tropey and just genre stuff. And, you know, it's... Again, this thing doesn't necessarily come up with anything new. It just is able to form the past into uh but but it, that it makes sense that even that these sentences make sense that it's so grammatically clear people make like write me a seinfeld script and you know it like makes sense give me a full house script it's it's bananas it's crazy so i mean i, I would say actually uh from the writer's side i guess if you're like scared that your job's going to be taken by chat gdp it could be a sign that your writing is extremely rote and very uh, by the books, because I don't think it's coincidence that both of these are like uh, unexpected ragtag heroes, you know, because it's just such a, it's such an overused story thing. But if people, that's what people want, that's what people would watch. And if you're somebody who's producing these shows, why pay a writer? Yeah, I mean. To come up with the same kind of stuff that this, got, things, this thing is going to give you. Yeah, like I don't think you'd want this to write the whole script, but... I could easily see taking these seeds of ideas that Chad GTP came up with and give that to a, a human writer and just yeah, say, fix and it. Yeah, some of it you could even give to your actors because if they're well-versed in the role that they're playing, but, you know, they could probably ad-lib a whole lot of stuff that would just make this stuff all flow together because they live that character anyway when they're working on it, when they're acting. And like I was saying, too, like this has really hit this level of fidelity within the last couple of years who knows, 10 years from now, maybe it really could write a whole script and you wouldn't be able to 
you wouldn't be able to tell. It's funny too, I was helping one of my friends flesh out a story he had some ideas for. It's like a future story, but in his story there's no AI because it, it was too dangerous and uh, ruined the economy and whatever, but he didn't really explain that well in his notes what happened to the AI or why it got shut down. So I went on ChatGTP and I asked it for 10 reasons why AI could be dangerous in the future. And it gave me 10 really good reasons. And it's like, that's pretty funny. <laughs> and they all made sense to me. I'm like, not bad. And the one I went with, which was one that he, it suggested, is what if AI took control of the banks? You know, just kind of like standard Terminator stuff where in the Terminator, the uh, robots decide humans are too dangerous and uh, set off a bunch of nukes. This would be like a less severe version of that. What if the AI was in charge of all the banks because it's just more convenient that way and it gets it in its head that, uh, you know, everything should be mega socialist, super communist, and it opens and drains every bank account and gives everyone equal amounts of money. So everyone on the earth has three cents and no one's rich anymore and it destroys everything, <laughs> you know, inadvertently and they have to get rid of AI. I was like, yeah. I mean, it's plausible and it would mess up the world and it, it's a good enough reason. Like you'd need something really bad to happen to outlaw AI. And I'm like, that sounds good to me. And it was ChatGTP that gave me that idea. Yeah. <laughs> like, Boy, we're seeing a 2001 A Space Odyssey. We're seeing it all kind of come to fruition where yeah. Dave has to be dismantled because Dave is taking charge. Yeah. It's pretty crazy, right? It is. Yeah. It's all just, again, I just thought maybe those two things would be a little interesting to transpose because now we're going to dive way deep into as far back as we can go with the history of film. But the future of film is probably this. <laughs> it's probably. There's no doubt. There's no doubt that this is definitely what it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think I would want to read an 800 page novel written by an AI. But I could see watching a, a cheesy soap opera if it's, you know, if it's hitting the right buttons. If I just want like a, a romance show, like you can make it so specific. Like <laughs> what if I wanted to give me this exact kind of character and this other kind of character? And yeah, I don't know, an 800 page AI one might be quite enlightening. Whereas some human produced 800 page stuff, oh my God, if you could cut through the friggin' chaff, it, it'd be a good novel. Right. But there's so much crap in a whole lot of those ones. I guess though, I mean, I guess presumably, I mean, who knows, I guess we'd have to see, but, but I guess the, the idea is these are, these are the tiny little, we're just looking at the very surface, but it is just as you see more of these or dig more into AI stuff, you start to realize it's not saying anything, you know, cause it can't, it can't come up with a new idea. It can't come up with a, a new philosophy or anything. And again, most people don't either, but but I mean, in the future, maybe it will. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, and just even if it's regurgitating old stuff, it's new to new to you kind of thing. Right. So that's what will make it survive. Uh, so uh, the only reason I even thought to bring that all up is because of the AI picture, and just how yeah, that's that's the tip of the iceberg that we can bring, <laughs> make a man from 1939 move again. 1839. 1839, sorry, yeah. I mean, the amount of stuff AI can do at this point. Or like, uh, I mean, music, especially if it's just kind of, uh, you know, a generic, like, movie Elevator score. type music, yeah. Yeah, or, or even just, uh, I mean, pop music very much sounds like it's made all computers these days, but even like a film score or something, yeah, like that kind of thing. I mean, I don't know that they're even... This might sound weird to say to a musician, maybe they'd be offended, but the way there's a lack of creativity ultimately when ChatGTP writes something, like it's not going to come up with the revolutionary idea that changes whatever, but music 
there's only 12 notes, you know? <laughs> you can't really do anything new. You're just constantly remixing what's already exists. There's only so many frequencies in, in sound. So, I mean, you could just set it loose. Just write me a thousand songs. One of them's gonna be good. You just need somebody to listen through them, you know? It's crazy. So anyway, there's that. Like I said, this is gonna be quite a weird episode. But now going back through this stuff on the old films and stuff channel, like I said, I got it set up by year. So the first one we've got is from 1885, and this is the earliest recording of the word fuck. <laughs> In 1885, a technician at Volta Laboratories accidentally recorded his reaction to a mechanical failure. Yeah, so I guess these are like the weird old, like, you know, the, uh... The, cylinder? The... the... I, I think it's not quite a cylinder. It is more of like a record, but he did have to, like, put the groove thing down in to, to carve the groove into the record. And, uh, he, like, went too deep and almost ruined it. So he says the word fuck. <laughs> so here's the earliest recording of the word fuck. 1885. Even though it's very uh, distorted and stuff, it's just very eerie to hear someone say the year 1885. And isn't that unusual? In that little song, Mary Had a Little Lamb, we say his fleece was white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. In his, his fleece was black as coal. Oh, I didn't even notice that. Yeah, yeah, what a change, eh? Yeah, I mean, who knows why? Who knows why it changed? I guess that's the thing. I guess with any of these things, I could probably go dig into a bunch of reese. Well, hold on. Oh, I just had an idea. Again, we got to take this with a grain of salt because it might not be right, but let's ask ChatGTP if it knows when and why the lyrics changed. When and why did the lyrics of Mary Had a Little Lamb change from black as coal to white as snow? The lyrics of Mary Had a Little Lamb have not changed from white as snow to black as coal. The traditional and widely recognized lyrics of the nursery rhyme are, Mary Had a Little Lamb, its fleece was white as snow. These lyrics have remained consistent over the years and have not undergone any significant changes in the context of the rhyme's well-known version. If you've come across variations with different lyrics, they might be adaptations or regional versions, but the original and most recognized is white as snow. So again, I don't know if that's actually right or if it's just bullshitting because it needs to give me an answer. But that sounds plausible, right? Certainly. <laughs> Certainly. <laughs> All right, so next up, this is very short. This is only 24 seconds long. It's just the first film with sound from 1894. The first sound film ever created filmed at Thomas Edison's Black Maria Studio. So this is very short, but we'll just, just for the sake of hearing it, here's the first film with sound. So just a guy playing violin and two guys in waistcoats uh, 
dancing. Waltzing. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a bit weird. Okay, so here's uh, the first major one. The Great Train Robbery. This is pretty, pretty famous. 1903 film. At 12 minutes long, The Great Train Robbery is considered a milestone in filmmaking. The film used a number of then unconventional techniques, including composite editing, on-location shooting, and frequent camera movements. By 1903, this seems weird to say 1903, but there were already... Uh, there was already a film industry. There was already all these little films that were all short, but, you know, they had all these little film reels going all over the place. So, uh, you know, the, this wasn't the first uh, Western or anything. It didn't really evolve anywhere even. Like, it's not like any of the stuff about this movie went on to future Westerns. It was kind of a, a dead end. If anything, I guess the thing with this movie is because it was just kind of a, exciting, and in 1903 it was still essentially the time of train robberies like this is you know weird this is like we're watching a cowboy movie from the cowboy times mostly what i read about this is that it was just if it is the first of anything it's like the first blockbuster still amazing though because we just watched the first film presumably the filming the 22nd one from 1894 here we are nine years later and we're looking at a movie. Well, that was the first with sound. Okay. They did okay, have movies yeah, before. First that. with sound. Okay. First with sound. Okay. It's only nine years later, and we're already into creating full-length movies. Yeah, and this one it was just very successful. Is mainly, I guess, why the Great Train Robbery is so well remembered. And uh, that one you see clips from all the time of uh, Journey to the to the Moon or whatever. Oh, yeah. With yeah. The, the weird rocket ship and. That came out the year before this, which is clearly more creative than The Great Train Robbery. So this is a talkie, though, too, right? Uh, I don't think so. I don't, but I guess we'll, I guess we'll find out. <laughs> yeah, because if it was a silent film, okay. But if it's a talkie, that's, that's very, very early for talking movies. So, uh, so anyway, I mean, I guess we'll find out. Let's just watch it. Let's just watch the, uh, the uh, ten-and-a-half-minute epic of The Great Train Robbery. Yeah, so that final shot of the guy firing at the screen, that's actually pretty famous. That's been parodied a lot and stuff. And I guess the idea with that is it's not part of the narrative because it just comes out of nowhere. It was, uh, it was supposed to kind of give you the impression of like a wanted poster, but then the wanted poster moves and it shoots at the audience. You know, like in 1903, probably people were like, oh, geez, you know, like don't shoot at the screen. So that was just an extra thing they threw in because it was neat. But yeah, you mentioned... Uh, as we were watching that, some of the uh, the hammy acting, and that reminded me, when I was reading about this last night, that critics at the time did criticize the bad acting. They're like, yeah, pretty exciting, pretty well shot, but bad acting. And I remember thinking, like, how bad can the acting be in a silent movie? But that's how bad. It's pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> pretty dramatic, some of it. Some of it was very good. Like the bad guys doing the robbery and on top of the train and having the fight on the top of the train. Not overacted at all. Well done. But some of the good guys when they were shot, like the guy putting up his hands and doing the pirouette, uh, the little girl when she comes in and oh, oh. Yeah, I was gonna say that part with the, uh, the robbers on top of the train, yeah, like there's a part where it's revealed to just be a dummy that they are punching and then they throw him off the train, but he's really just punching him in the face. I was like, geez, for the time especially, talk about violent. But yeah, it's really neat to watch that and it was just silent and uh, didn't have those title cards that come up with the words which would have been unnecessary because they always just say what you already know is happening. But uh, it's just so hard as we're watching that for me to keep, I had to keep reminding myself, like this is not 
uh, a Western film like we would make. These aren't costumes. These aren't sets. This is, well, they are sets, but, but like those costumes are just the clothes. The, the environment is just like, that is it. That's the old West. You know, we're, we're looking at it. It's the tail end of it. But like, how weird is that? Like that's. We're watching a real train. And uh, you can tell by the speed that it's traveling and those telegraph poles are just slowly going by. They're actually, got, they've got a camera on top of the train and they're filming that. That's pretty darn good for 1903. Yeah, because even that's a more or less recent thing. If I remember right, Fast and the Furious, they developed a, it was like 20 years ago, the first one came out. They developed a new camera rig that would keep the camera from shaking so they could drive, you know, 70 miles an hour. Where before that, even in modern movies, you know, you had to keep the speed down a little or the camera would get all jittery. So yeah, back then, that train was moving really slow. But they had a whole 1903 camera rig on that thing. Like they had no, no option. So yeah, I mean, pretty, pretty cool. It's just basically the train robbers come in, they beat up the conductor, not the conductor, the guy who runs the station. They uh, disconnect the, uh, what's the locomotive part of a train called? The engine. The engine. <laughs> and... Uh, and yeah, they disconnect the engine from all the passenger cars. They rob all the passengers. They shoot a guy <laughs> who, who tried to run away. And they just take the money and uh, hop take on their off horses. off in the engine and they, off they go. Get off there, run after, have some horses strategically placed in the woods. But there's where the weakness comes. They've traveled from the station on the train, left part of the train in the woods or somewhere out and whatever, taken off in the engine, have gone down the trackaways with the engine, got on the horses and are driving away. Meanwhile, in the town, the people are at the hoedown and they're dancing. And then the next thing you know, they're out in the woods too and they're chasing the guys and they catch them in jig time. Like all that happens in about, I don't know, a couple of minutes. Yeah, yeah, I mean... You're saying like, where the heck did they come from and how did they get there that fast when you think the other guys actually traveled by train, horse... <laughs> And they're presumably riding away from town, yeah. not, not back toward it. Well, not toward town, so I unless mean, there's another town. I mean, it did follow, the, the, logic, the series of events was logical, but it, it deliberately took a long time. They showed the knocked out guy who ran the uh, train station, it took easily a minute to revive him. Then when they're showing the hoedown dance, the that, whole damn dance we saw. Yeah, that went on and on before the station master came in and alerted them that there'd been a train robbery. So yeah, if anything, the the story they were telling is, man, these criminals are far away at this point. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, they're and just... they pulled it all together. Like, let's get the bad guys. But that all happened in a matter of a couple of minutes at the very end. It's almost like they got so far down the line and they said, we got to finish this thing up real fast. And they did. But I wonder if it's uh, just the same as nowadays, where if you overly criticize you know like an action movie or something people are like yeah you're not supposed to you're supposed to just turn off your brain and just watch it i wonder if the 1903 equivalent was the same thing of like critics going like that's a little convenient and then just like ah just enjoy the great train robbery stop overthinking oh, it I'm you sure nerd it was. i'm sure it was and people were probably because of the time of that it was produced were probably just so enamored with it because it would be so new that, oh yeah, they'd find that so exciting. And they'd, they wouldn't be ripping it apart. Like we would like 80, 90, 100 years later, more than 100 years later. But it was good, well done. So I, I actually have, uh, I probably got more stuff here than we really need to watch, there's quite a bit. Most of it is from the 20s and on, which isn't so crazy, there's quite a bit of stuff from that era. So let's watch, we'll start with, I do have one more really old thing. So we'll watch that and then we'll see where we go from here. This is a trio of iconograph films from 1907. 
So this is, oh yeah, this is only a minute long and it's three films, <laughs> but they're from 1907. So I think part of the, the trick here will be just, uh, can we actually determine what's going on in these movies? Can we actually follow them? So let's see, but let's see what the guy had to say about these. All right, here are three 17 and a half millimeter iconograph films. I'm not actually sure what an iconograph machine is that I recently purchased. Iconograph films are fairly rare and don't come up for sale often. As far as I'm aware, only three other such films have been archived and digitized, one of which was a duplicate of my Tramp film. Let me just really quickly look up what is iconograph. But yeah, apparently these three short iconograph films are 50% of what even exists. Well, I mean, I guess it's just an early, what the heck is that thing? Like it's just a weird cylinder and a crank and uh, I guess film. A camera. Yeah. And these are the little discs. So anyway, old school movie projector thing. And yeah, so the whole trio is only a minute and 10 seconds. So let's see. <laughs> so yeah, the, the first one was pretty good and then the second one was less good and the third one was no good. <laughs> but again, here we are just being all critical of these in the future. So yeah, the first one, what the blind man saw was this guy who's got the sign, I am blind, you know, begging for alms. But then this lady comes over, which again, it's so crazy to think these aren't costumes. That's just her clothes from 1907. But all she does is lifts her frilly... Puts her money, puts her, gives her money first. Right. And then lifts up her skirt because she's either scratching her knee or something. Or maybe she's putting her purse inside her stocking. Who knows? And it's like this huge frilly dress with the yeah. big peacock looking hat and everything. Yeah. And he's there... Uh, sitting on his chair and then he's leaning right over he's practically got his face on the ground trying to look up her skirts yeah well i thought it was just the ankle just that thing of just seeing well because she had the skirt up quite high she had it up to her knee right and i think that she may have had a garter like around her and possibly her purse was in that garter and she was putting her purse back or doing something like that and anyway he's practically got his face on the ground because he's looking right up the skirt and of course then she hits him with the umbrella and starts beating him up. And then that man who was originally on the scene walking by, he comes back and he pounds the piss out of the guy too. <laughs> I think that was a cop maybe, but anyway, yeah, cause he's clearly not blind, just the gag. So, so I mean, that's like you, you'd see the exact same joke in like a National Lampoon movie, except it would show the tits or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Here it's just, oh no, the ankle, yeah, you can yeah, see a bit. Yeah, or maybe, maybe her calf, ooh. Right. Uh, and then the second one was like a special effects thing of just uh, a tramp running from the cops and he hops in a, uh, in a, like a garbage can and then just through the magic of film editing, he disappears out of there. The cops like, where'd he go? And then he appears from another garbage can in the back and runs off. So I was mostly, I think, just to show that they could do that. Like, look at that, special effects. And then the third one was just called a, a Two Clowns Laughing or Two Clowns Like a conversation. In conversation. Two Clowns in Conversation. And that's what it was, just two guys dressed as clowns talking. Kind of laughing, laughing. And the film was very damaged in the middle. All right, so there's actually, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff on this guy's channel, but I'm just looking at the stuff I've laid out, and it's, uh, you know, 1920, 1923, uh, you know, and it's, like, similar looking to the Great Train Robbery, still that type of thing, even all these years later. But I think those might just be a little less interesting because they're not as far back. We already watched The Great Train Robbery, so I think we can uh, move forward a little. But they're all on this guy's channel if anyone's interested. I thought we could just finish off with two things that especially stood out. So this one, Great Yarmouth in the 1920s, Wharton's Hire Service. I guess Wharton's Hire Service, as far as I can tell, is just kind of like a taxi type service. 
And uh, it's a couple minutes long. And this is just interesting because it's a commercial, like a 1920s advertisement, which is just really old. Norfolk Garage, St. George's Road, Great Yarmouth, Wharton and Son, cars, lorries, and charabanks, etc. Do you know what that is? Have you ever heard of that? No. Let me look that up real quick. What is a charabank? Oh, it's a bus. <laughs> oh. What is charabank in British slang? It's a derisive term for a car, bus, train, or other vehicle that's in poor quality, slow, or overcrowded. So I presume it didn't mean that in 1920, because you wouldn't say, like, hey, come get a beater with us. Yeah, you wouldn't be advertising for it. <laughs> but okay, cars, lorries, and charabanks, etc. <laughs> it's here to finish off, yeah. A reliable car hire service for weddings, dances, dinners, sports, and all special occasions. Ring up 233. <laughs> That's the whole number. So yeah, the thing that must have been, because there's all the old-timey cars driving out of the garage, what must have been the Cherubanks was it was like a, like a bus with no top. But I did notice after, like it was a weird-looking vehicle. Like we definitely don't have those anymore. It just looked like a bunch of people, I don't know, in like a boat, but driving around kind of. But, uh, but I did notice at the back they had, you know, the uh, folded down top. So it's just like those old cars where you could pull back the top, except this one was like 20 It'd be people like long. like a super limousine. Yeah. You know those big long stretch limousines? Except it had, would have seats all the way through, where stretch limousines you just have the driver up front. And then at the back you've got all the, the seating and only maybe two seats in yeah. here. This would have had about, oh, it must have had six or seven rows of seats in there yeah and uh, i mean it must have been a pain in the butt if you had to pull that top over <laughs> for it to be that for it to be that long but yeah, it was like one of those double-decker tour buses without the bottom just the top deck was the bottom deck <laughs> charabanks so anyway that's an interesting weird thing just a weird old commercial and then to finish off with this guy there's not a lot of details about this the guy labeled it as creepy 1930s stop motion and this is his most viewed video. It's got uh, almost 3 million views. But this thing is called Dolly, Daisy, and Hearts and Flowers. And a lot of the comments are like, it's not creepy, it's awesome. Like, it's just cool. Like, imagine how hard it was to do all this stop motion where you've got to take each frame, an individual picture. Some guy in the comments was saying like, man, I'd do that. I'm doing that right now. And it's still a pain with, with uh, digital photography to do it back then. But yeah, it's one of those things, though, that is always, like, timelessly impressive, especially now that we're in the 3D computer age. Like, stop motion is just cool. So, so it's called Dolly, Daisy, and Hearts and Flowers. And the only thing the guy mentioned about it is that the original soundtrack was missing, but there's a song called that, so he just put that song on this video. Strange little flick. <laughs> so I did a little looking up and I couldn't find much about it, but I just did find it. It's a Warner Brothers thing. It is American because it had that feeling of like weird Eastern European, creepy, I don't know what. But then I guess it becomes clear it's American once the black character shows up and he's just, you know, that's that classic racist American black depiction. But yeah, just the, those, like the, the actual animation was pretty impressive and pretty well done. But those little, the little mannequins are so creepy and ugly looking. Like, that's what makes it creepy, is that just the design is terrible. And that plot just made no freaking sense of just, like, 
guy comes either to have a date with what's her name dolly something dolly, da uh, dolly daisy <laughs> dolly daisy either to have a date with her or just to coerce her out of her house for a date but uh there's uh also this this navy guy who uh, is hiding in the bushes and he comes out and is like no no have a date with me and then she drives off with the first guy but uh this little black puppet dude who was fishing, fishing yeah he ruins the bridge so the first car crashes and the second guy, the Navy guy, comes behind and hops over the, uh, the, the bridge, the river or whatever. And he's like, hey, get on with me now. So she hops on with him. And then they crash. So she's just like, whatever, and pulls out a balloon, inflates that, and floats up to the sky and high-fives the freaking moon. But then somebody shoots her balloon, which I thought maybe was her dad, because I think she ends up back at her house, right? He I was outside. So. But he was, like, drinking or whatever. And uh, then he pulls out his gun and shoots the moon, and it blows up with a bunch of sparklers in the end. <laughs> like, All right. Okay. Oh, and there was a little uh, a, a Chinese guy who came out of the ground for no reason. Another sign of weird early American yeah, racism. Yeah, that was weird. <laughs> and the racism happened when the poor little black guy who was fishing and the bridge collapsed, he tries to warn the car as it's approaching, and they just hit him. Yeah, gets Bang run right over. into him. He flies up, and then the uh, then so finally he comes to and. The second guy, the little sailor, he's coming along too, and he lambastes him also. <laughs> yeah, because it is one of those things that sometimes, uh, you know, you can make certain arguments sometimes for the old stuff of like, ah, it wasn't necessarily racist, it's just different attitudes or weird ways that they presented people that were, I don't know, whatever. But this seemed pretty racist. They're clearly like, ah, nuts to that guy, run him over, run yeah, him over again. Run him over again. <laughs> <laughs> and the little... Like, I don't know why this little Chinese guy, I mean, I'm guessing, I'm just inferring here, but that idea that, like, if China is on the other side of the earth, that he burrowed through just to say hello, hey, I'm a little guy with a Chinese hat. Did that happen when uh, the first boyfriend pulled the fence post up so that he could create a ladder for the girl to come down from her window? When he pulled up the fence post, yeah. and came out of the earth. Yeah, so, I mean... So, who knows what that was supposed to mean? I mean, I guess it's 1930s, right? You're just trying to make people laugh for five minutes and, uh, you know... Yes, <laughs> and there was a whole lot of stuff about eugenics and all that business going on in the 1930s where anybody who was a little different you had to be put down or put off or hit by a car twice. I have a feeling maybe if we dug even deeper, I mean, there's no doubt just would be more and more of this stuff. But anyway, I don't know. I don't really know what to say about that one. It's just real weird, but <laughs> but at least that one was different. Cause, yeah, it like, definitely had a European feel about it, though. You're right. Like You kind of think it would be placed in Yugoslavia or Transylvania or yeah, someplace. Some Romanian, which is something. something. <laughs> some, some place where you're very not familiar with their mores or whatever. And, and yet, no, it's American. Yeah, because it just doesn't have at all that feeling of even like old Betty Boop cartoons and stuff. Like they're weird and they have that rubbery animation, but they're not that weird. <laughs> even the little village where the, the housing that they showed, the little house that she lived in, the little village, it didn't have an American feel to it either. Yeah, it was very, it was very European. Yeah, I mean, I wonder. It's too bad we can't find any information about that because, like, maybe that's maybe that's what it was meant to be. Like, maybe this is like a Warner Brothers Vitaphone five-minute parody of creepy old fairy tales and weird old stuff. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, yeah, I think we can uh, wrap it up there. Again, this was probably the weirdest episode mm -hmm. we've ever done of this podcast. But just hopping around, there we go. We get to see. Uh, the past and then the past brought into the future through ai and then the magical 
super future of how the AI is no doubt going to take over <laughs> all storytelling in the future. And then, then uh, you know, the Great Train Robbery was the first blockbuster, and uh, Dolly Daisy is nothing in particular. It's just, just weird. It's kind of a, yeah, strange little story. So I just kind of got the sense that of those, at least the Great Train Robbery, you can see why it was a big success at the time, because... Uh, it had a great train robbery in it. Yes, and it had a story that fit together and, and made sense. And some great filming for its time. And some of that filming was really amazing. Actually, here's what I'll finish with. I'll just have this fade out, because this is the other thing that's kind of interesting, is, uh, you know, we think of electronic music as really took off in the 80s, but, you know, guys like Kraftwerk were doing stuff in the 70s. And if you go really far back, you can find stuff in the 60s that's, like, more like oscilloscopes or whatever, but this is electronic music from the 1930s. Some guy took a Rachmaninoff song and uh, used this technique called... Uh, so this is made by a guy named Nikolai Voynov in 1932 using his paper sound technique, which again, it's weird, like looking up this stuff, I looked that up and you can't really get a clear answer. Like, what does that mean? What was this device? How did it work? I don't know, but we'll just fade out with this because it's neat to hear electronic music from the 30s and it sounds pretty cool. It sounds pretty similar to like early 80s, you know, weird computer music. Thank you. 